all right, maybe it's not a good thing for mankind and for society, but if I was uh, if I was the CEO of an organization, I would actually be glad that's the way the world's headed because I know that I could make that a competitive advantage for my company. That we could be we could have such high standards for being in the present moment and creating relationships and face-to-face contact and blocking out distractions. That could actually be one of our competitive advantages. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. G'day everyone, Craig from People With A Passion and today's special guest is Alan Stein Jr. He's a best-selling author, he's sold thousands of copies of his recent book Raise Your Game, The High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. He's one of the US's most sought-after keynote speakers at the moment, helping businesses improve their leadership and culture and he's worked with some of the best NBA players on the planet. Please take time now to enjoy this episode of People With A Passion and Alan Stein Jr. We'll get straight into it, mate, because time is uh, valuable. It's one resource we all have limited <laughs> time. Right. So I really appreciate the you giving your time to be here today. So I wanted, I wanted to start with a little bit about you. Uh, you're a former sports um, strength and conditioning coach for basketball. That's your core background for around 20 years. But around three or four years ago, you decided to branch into the corporate world and uh, people with a passion is about passion. So obviously a driving passion for you has been sport and basketball. Why the transition to business? I was just ready for a change, to be honest. Um, you know, basketball had been my number one driving passion ever since I was a child. And I'm so thankful that I was able to to make a career out of the sport that I love so much for almost 20 years. But I started to find that my own passion and my own interest started to wane as far as doing stuff on court with players. And that I, uh, I don't want to be overly dramatic and say that I was burnt out, but I could see myself heading in that direction. And I'm a big believer as I'm sure many of your listeners are, that you've really got to find your passion and you've got to find things that really light you up. And I, I just started to notice that, that basketball performance training wasn't doing that for me anymore and I needed to make a change. Mm, but you didn't, you made a change, but you're still in the world of human performance. So that's obviously a driving factor for you. So when you get to that point with your passion where you say, okay, maybe. I'm not as motivated as I used to be. What pushed you down that path then of keynote speaking? And Well, there were, there were a couple of things. I mean, one, um, and my decision to make this change really came more out of a respect for the coaching craft. You know, I, I'm a big advocate and supporter of teachers and coaches, and I'm a firm believer that if you as the teacher or coach aren't passionate about what you're doing, that you're actually cheating your students or you're cheating your athletes and your players. So while I was approaching burnout, I'm sure that I still could have been good enough that I could have faked it, put on a smile and still done a very good job. But then I would have been cheating the players I was working with and I would have been cheating the game. So that was why I was so resolute about making the change. Uh, Another part uh, as far as why I chose professional keynote speaking, uh, one, I loved speaking in general. Like I was doing a lot of clinics around the world speaking to basketball players and coaches. Um, so I knew that that was the, the craft that I wanted to pursue. Really all I needed to do was find a new audience. And part of the reason that my passion started to shift was 
most of the work I was doing was helping players run faster and jump higher and improve athleticism on the court. But my personal fascination and passion was in improving things like leadership, uh, accountability, communication, um, culture. So I figured what's another target audience that could benefit from all of these things that I've learned in those domains from the game of basketball and business was just the most obvious choice. So to be able to take my appreciation for the speaking craft and combine it with my new love of leadership and accountability and communication and relationships and culture, it just seemed like a natural fit. And I had always known uh, there was so much utility between what was done in sport and what was done in business that it just made the most sense to make that leap. But the real deciding factor was I was spending most of my time working with teenage uh, males in basketball and they weren't really teaching me a lot. I was, I was doing most of the teaching and I knew that if I made the leap over to the business space um, that I would learn just as much as I was sharing. And that's something I'm real passionate about is continual development and ten- continual growth. And that, you know, being in the business world would allow me to meet people like yourself and, and meet the clients that I speak to. And, you know, for everything that I share, I'm learning just as much, if not more. And that's something that really, really excites me. So I think that was really the final spark that that made the change was I was just ready to grow and to challenge myself and push myself further than I had before. Hmm. It's interesting that you talk about passion. One thing I've discovered with a lot of people who have passion is this desire to constantly learn and evolve that the status quo is not something that a lot of them are comfortable with or what they perceive as normalcy and particularly creatives that they constantly have to be, it's almost like part of their makeup that they have to be creating. So that to hear you, you say, you know, around the, the passion, that need to learn is very important. Do you think that the translatability of what you're doing as far as the, you know, moving from sport to business is because business is actually a team sport? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. And and I also believe, you know, quality leadership knows no bounds. I mean, uh, quality leadership is needed in every area of our life, both personal and professional. I mean, certainly you need, you know, CEOs and executives on the business side and you've got coaches and trainers on the sports side. Uh, but you need leadership just to run your own family. You know, you need leadership in communities. You need leadership. So these type of things, I knew they had very high utility. And um you know, what's funny is uh, the list is so long of things that can be transferred from sport to business that we could actually have a much shorter conversation if we talked about the differences. Mm. Uh, because as you said, business is very much a team sport. Uh, there is a scoreboard in business. Now, what you choose to use as your scoreboard uh, can alter. I mean, it doesn't have to just be profits or, or revenue. Um, but yeah, the similarities between the two are are incredible. And uh, with any time... You know, I can work on skills that have high utility that transfer to any area of life. I feel like that's a good investment in my own future. And, and you know, along with leadership is communication. You know, there's, there's not an area of life that doesn't get drastically enhanced by your ability to communicate more effectively. Um, once again, personal or professional, individual or organizational. So, yeah, that was absolutely a main draw is, is how much transfer there is between the two. Yeah. With uh, communication, things I've identified over the years of the organizations I've been party to is that 
often where most problems occur is actually with miscommunication where someone didn't get a memo or someone didn't see something and then a blame game sort of starts around I didn't know about that and and or who's doing that so so communication just on the simplest and most basic levels is is extremely important absolutely so let's talk about some of these things that transition into business from sport so you you mentioned things like culture so teams in sport obviously the most successful teams seem to have something that's different a dynamic that's different and the same with successful businesses what do you see as the key components or some of the components of a of a business that has a good culture uh, there's there's three in particular and I, I know culture is somewhat of a buzzword and, and I view culture as really is there alignment between what you believe and how you behave you know if, if you have this vision statement for your company or this mission statement and it says that you're all about this well is that how you and your people actually behave on a daily basis uh, because there's a lot of groups that that have the nice website or the trifold brochure or a nice gold plaque behind the front desk reception area and then you walk into their office and they're not living by those same values and those same principles so it's all about the experience that's created uh, certainly for the members of your team or organization but also for your clients and customers. And is there an alignment between belief and behavior? Uh, and I believe there's actually three things that will determine uh, culture. Uh, the first is role clarity. Uh, does everyone in your organization know exactly what their role is, what the team needs them to do for the team to be successful? Um, and do they embrace and, and try to star in their role? You know, um, so we have to have role clarity. Uh, the second is accountability. So once you've created standards for your organization, um, is everyone living up to those? And if not, do you have systems in place where you guys hold each other accountable? And very average organizations have what's called vertical accountability, which is I'm at the top of the org chart, I tell you what to do, and you do it. Uh, the best organizations have what's called horizontal accountability as well, which means it doesn't matter where you fall on the org chart. Everybody holds everyone else accountable to live up to the standards that we all agreed to so that we can live out that mission and that vision. Uh, and then the third, we've already teed up and you are 100% right, is communication or usually lack of miscommunication or poor communication. Um, the ability for teams to effectively communicate in different departments, uh, amongst colleagues and coworkers, you know, being able to speak the other person's language, both through email uh, and, and actually in person, so that your message is always conveyed in the manner that you meant it to be. Uh, those are the three things that I think weigh most heavily on an organization's ability to have what's a winning culture. Yeah, so they're very important points, all three of those, and you do see those translate to the most successful teams. Are there things that sort of stand out in an organization that would say, well, maybe the culture needs some addressing here? Yeah, I actually think it is. It's the inverse. It's, uh, there's, there's lack of role clarity. Not everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing or when they're supposed to be doing it. Uh, they don't really know what's expected of them. Or worse, uh, they're actually, they think their role is different than what it's supposed to be. You know, I work with a lot of executives and managers and supervisors, and one of the exercises I have them do um, is say, all right, let's just say uh, that, Craig, let's just say that I, uh, you report to me, and I write down what I believe your role is, and then I have you separately write down what you believe your role is, and then we compare those two sets of notes, and many times there's not near as much overlap as one would hope, that you actually think 
you're supposed to be doing A, B, and C, and I'm over here thinking you're supposed to be doing D, E, and F, and now we've got some tension. I'm frustrated. You're not doing what I think you're supposed to be doing, but you think you're supposed to be doing something completely different, and now you're frustrated with me. It starts a whole world of problems. Uh, And then accountability, the second pillar, I actually think is probably the biggest separator uh, amongst average, great, and elite organizations, and that's caring enough to hold people accountable. You know, that's if you were to mess up, Craig, and step out of bounds and not do what we've all agreed to do, that I care enough about you uh, and I care enough about our organization that I'm going to tell you that and I'm going to hold you accountable in an empathetic and compassionate way. I'm a big believer that holding someone accountable is something you do for them. Mm-hmm. It's not something you do to them. And that the best gift you can give another human being is to hold them accountable to a very high standard. So it's easy to let little things slide. So, you know, in tomorrow's meeting, you show up one minute late. It's easy to just be like, okay, that's just one minute. That's not that big of a deal. Well, in and of itself, yeah, it's probably not that big of a deal. But now you've started to plant a seed where, well, next time you're going to be 90 seconds late. And then maybe the time after that, you're four minutes late. And now three other people who look up to you, they're starting to show up late because they see you show up late. So what started off as something really small can quickly spread to a major problem all because we lack the accountability and be able to say, hey, Craig, I noticed you walked in 60 minutes, uh, excuse me, 60 seconds late today. If you can't get here on time, then the only other option is to get here early and do it in a way that allows you to perform at a higher level. Uh, And then clearly, uh, I think anyone listening uh, or watching would understand how miscommunication or poor communication can completely undermine your entire culture. Yeah. Putting a rotten apple in amongst a whole heap of healthy apples, it, it sort of well said. You know, makes the makes the rest of the apple cart uh, rotten. So I've seen that in in my own organisation. I must say that when people start to slacken and don't hold each other to account, that that it does sort of give a, almost a permission to someone else to then start the same behaviour, and it and it can go downhill from there. So having everyone holding each other to account is an extremely important thing. Something you've talked about is is gaining permission to hold people to account, that that's, that's something that's extremely important. So do you want to explain the concept of permission and, and having the permission to hold someone to account? Absolutely. I mean, if I go back to my, my basketball training days, um, I had a series of questions that I would ask every player that I worked with. The first question would be, do you give me permission to coach you? Like, are you going to be open to the suggestions that I make to coach you to be the best player that you can be? You know, are you going to allow me to use my expertise and my experience to do what I believe is in your best interest for you to be the best player you can be? And, and, and I need them to be able to say yes. I mean, if they look me in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to let you coach me, then clearly this relationship can't work. Uh, but then the next step is, do you give me permission to hold you accountable? So we're going to collectively come up with some standards of what's what's the atmosphere and environment that we need for you to perform at the highest level. And we're going to come to agreement and consensus, you know, whether it's one on one or it's with our entire organization. But we're going to come up with a list of standards that if we all live up to these standards, we'll be on the path to achieving the goal and the mission and the vision that we've set. So once we've created these standards, now the next question is, do you give me permission to hold you accountable to these standards? That if I see or hear you do something that's not in alignment with these standards or I see you step out of bounds, 
do you give me permission to bring that up to you? And once again, I mean, we're looking for compliance. We're looking for someone that says, yes, I want you to hold me accountable. Uh, because once they've given you that permission, it makes things so much easier moving forward. There's a lot less friction because now if one of our standards is we will always be on time or early for company events and at tomorrow's meeting, you show up one minute late, but you've already given me permission to hold you accountable. There's really not a whole lot you can say. I mean, uh, human nature dictates you're still probably just because you're a human being. This certainly is not personal. You're probably going to make an excuse on why you're late or you're probably going to blame someone else for why you're late. Uh, or after I leave and hold you accountable, you're probably going to complain about me to the folks sitting near you. But there's really not a whole lot you can say. You know, Craig, did you know that being on time was one of our standards? Yes. Did you give me permission to hold you accountable when you stepped outside of that? Yes. Okay, well then why are you surprised that I'm holding you accountable? You showed mm -hmm. up one minute late. I mean, you already know that I'm there. And just that agreement already takes the sting and the issue out of most of it. In fact, if we've already created that agreement, when you show up 60 seconds late, you usually show up, show up with an apology and say, you know, I realized I, I messed up today. I'm so sorry that I'm late. It won't happen again. And it's already diffused the whole situation. Yeah, I, I think uh, culture also, which is something that I try and do with the organizations that I belong to, is not to make that fabricated excuse or lie, so to speak, is to own uh, if you make that mistake that you actually own it. So ownership yes. of your action in, in an organization and culture, I think is extremely important because that's what builds another level of trust. And, I, and that's another factor with, with companies and business that's also important in team sport is this concept of trust. Now, on that topic of permission, you've worked with a number of elite athletes uh, in basketball that have gone on to play in the NBA and some uh, you've worked with in while well, they've been in the NBA, but one of those you have a story uh, of Kevin Durant when you're working with him, um, trying to encourage him to hit the gym and or do strength and conditioning more so. Do you want to talk a little bit about that experience and and him giving you permission and how how you had to work him to to get him to that point? Most certainly, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> Kevin. Um, had a, I met him when he was 15 years old, and, and I know he's sitting out right now with an, uh, an Achilles injury, but for the most part, most people think Kevin is one of the top three basketball players in the world, just in case some of your listeners don't follow basketball. I mean, so you're talking about someone that is, um, you know, in the upper 0.1% of what he does and a true master of his craft. And when I met him when he was really young, he had three of the four major pillars already in place uh, to become a great player. Uh, he had a great work ethic and a strong passion for the game. He loved to play. He had a very high basketball IQ. He understood the game. He had great footwork and mechanics. Like, he was fundamentally sound. But the only thing he was really lacking was lack of strength. Uh, Kevin was very slender back then. He was really tall, had very long limbs. And he wasn't near as strong as he needed to be. So uh, I started to convince him and his wonderful mom, Wanda, uh, that getting stronger was going to be a requirement, that that was going to be, you know, something that could prevent him from playing at a high level. And eventually, uh, Kevin came in for a workout, and I laid the hammer on him pretty good. I mean, I, I took him through a really, really tough workout. And at the end of it, I asked him if he liked the workout. And, and it's funny now, I didn't think it was so funny at the time, uh, but he said, no, I didn't. But I know this is the kind of stuff that I need to do if I want to be a great player. So when can we meet again? And 
I just remember being blown away that this young man had the maturity to acknowledge that he was going to have to make a change to what he was doing, and that change was going to require discomfort. It was going to require a sacrifice. You know, he could have easily said, look, man, I'm one of the best high school players in the country. I'm doing fine. I don't need to come in and do these kind of workouts because, to be honest, they're pretty hard and I don't like them. Uh, but, but he thought bigger than that, and he thought on such a scale that he was willing to make that change and, and was willing – uh, to do whatever he needed to do to be successful. And he approached that discomfort head on and he leaned into it. And that's a huge part of, of this success equation, you know, is, is figuring out what sacrifices do you need to make to get where you want to go? And then are you willing to deal with the uh, subsequent discomfort that comes with making those types of changes? And uh, with that said, I mean, I never would have guessed back then that Kevin would be one of the best players to ever play the game. But now that he is, I'm not even remotely surprised. I mean, it was it was obvious to me that, that he had the mental makeup and fortitude to want to approach that. And And this is where I think it's so important that people realize passion is really the foundation and passion is a really important puzzle piece, but you can't survive just on passion alone. You have to actually have the passion to do the dirty work and to do the stuff that you don't want to do and the passion to uh, work during the unseen hours uh, because you're passionate about your craft or passionate about your result doesn't necessarily mean you're passionate about every single step that needs to be taken in order to be successful. Hmm. You've recently, sadly I bring this up, but lost two very key people to, that have motivated you and been part of your life, one being Morgan Wooten. Um, of Damatha, where you worked, and obviously Kobe Bryant, who you also have had experiences um, working with. What do you think their legacy is to uh, those that are still here? Um, what do you think the messaging, then what the takeaways from their lives are for, for people in sport and business? Well, you know, for, for frame of reference, so Morgan Wooten, uh, was the coach at DeMatha Catholic High School for 47 years. Uh, I'm only 44 years old, mm. so he coached three years longer than I've been alive. And that certainly, should, you don't do that without having a very high passion, uh, in his case, not only for the game of basketball, but for helping young people and pouring into young people. So, uh, you know, I think his legacy is absolutely cemented. Uh, one of the best coaches and leaders of any sport or any industry. You know, he was one that I think he really showed other coaches how important relationships were and how important it was to care about your players. You know, he was the first one that I remember being coined with the saying that, you, you know, he taught in an all boys school. So I'm just saying boys, clearly mm -hmm. we would coach girls the same way, but he would say, you know, I coach every young man as if he was my own son and I'm going to coach him with that type of care and love, uh, which of course means accountability and discipline. Yeah. Um, but, but he really bought brought a human side to coaching. And of course, you know, the, the, the bittersweet part about Morgan's passing is, you know, he lived to be almost 90 years old. So you're talking about someone that had a very full life um, and, and certainly got to see and do a lot of amazing things. Uh, then you turn over to Kobe, which, you know, the reason his death was so sudden and so tragic was, I mean, he was cut down in his prime. I mean, he's 41 years old, so he's not even as old as I am. And he didn't get to live the long full life that maybe Morgan did from a time standpoint, but he certainly appeared to live as full of a life as you could live for only being 41. And, you know, certainly for most of his life, 
he was hyper focused on the craft of basketball and becoming the best player that he could be. And I don't think there's any question that he became the best player he was capable of. Um, where you rank him in history amongst other players is a completely separate discussion. But I don't think Kobe could have squeezed one more ounce of potential out of himself. He got it all out. And then he transferred that to the business world mm. as well and, and started doing other things. And, you know, the thing I really admire about him um, is, is how dedicated he was as a father, how, how good of a family man he was. I mean, there, even in his last moments on earth, he's trying to take his daughter to a basketball game at, you know, his facility for a team that he coaches. So it's, it's certainly sad to see someone, you know, uh, leave that early mm. uh, who still had so much more to do. But I do think that if we can draw from that and say, all right, well, we realize now, and I know we all know this intuitively, but it reminds us that uh, we don't have, we don't always have time. It's not promised that anything could happen to any one of us any given day. So let's live our lives accordingly. Let's, let's not live our lives as if we have 40 years left. Let's live our lives as if we don't. And then if we do end up with 40 more years, like a Morgan Wooten, uh, then we'll have gotten the most out of that time. So yeah, I, I think the world lost two amazing guys and two amazing leaders, but both really left their thumbprint on the world before they left, which uh, I think is what any of us are hoping to accomplish. Hmm. That word you threw in there, hyperfocus, it, I think the world would have been intrigued to see where Kobe ended up in the business world because he seemed to carry and transfer the passion he had for the sport of basketball it sort of translated to business and and not surprisingly that's sort of similar to what you're doing is recognizing that the comparability of the two that a lot of what sport actually has to offer and teach you is translatable to business but he also had that same hyper focus you could see with his approaches to what he was actually doing in the and starting to do in the business world and he'd he'd seem to put basketball even though he had his academy and things a lot of that part of his life, a lot of athletes can struggle with what's next. He seemed to like say, well, this is what I am now. This is what I do now. And he was very comfortable with that. Yeah, it sure seemed like it. And, you know, one of the things that I really believe separated him as a player was his preparation and his due diligence. I mean, uh, I, I believe legend has it. I mean, he watched more film as an individual player than probably anyone in existence because he was always studying what his opponent would do and what their tendencies were. So he's watching hours and hours of film before every game. Uh, and then he would also watch film of himself to see what things he could improve. And I think he took that same mindset and that preparation and that due diligence to the business world. I mean, uh, from what I gather, he's made, he made several really wise investments into different companies. And I can only assume that wasn't luck. Uh, that was because he did his due diligence and he studied everything he could about those companies, not only from their product or service, but, you know, what was their culture? How did they behave? You know, and he, he, he made very successful bets on those companies from his due diligence. And then if you just even look at, you know, his his habits and his behavior, you know, he was notorious for getting up really early to get an early morning workouts when he was a player. And I heard he was doing the same thing in the business world, that he was choosing to get up early to put in work in the early morning so that he would be done his day by the time his daughters got off from school. So, you know, they're getting out of school at two or three o'clock and he had pretty much already finished his business for the day so that he could spend quality time with them. Uh, but that was only because he got up early. He's still working eight to 10 hour days. He's just starting the clock much earlier. And that was 
directly something that that he believed in as a player and did as a player. Mm. So time management there, that's something that, uh, you know, as well in business and sport is translatable. Time management seems to be something that's common with people who have individual success in their own training. And I imagine the same with business. It, It would be highly translatable if you've got the ability to manage your time well. As I said at the opening of this show that I thank you for your time because it is our most valuable resource. Yeah. Well, and what I think, and I'm so glad that you went that direction. Um, I do believe that especially young people today, they have more distractions than we've ever had in, in mankind. So uh, I think that's the reason it's harder for them to potentially block out distractions and stay focused in the present moment and manage their time more effectively is there's so many different options. I mean, uh, I'm 44 years old, born and raised here in the United States. When I was a child, when I was the age of my children now, we only had like three or four TV channels. Mm-hmm. That was it. I mean, there weren't a lot of options. And, you know, and even things like Atari and Nintendo didn't come around till I was a little bit older, which meant I didn't have very many distractions. I could go out and ride my bike. I could go out and play a sport. I could go out and climb a tree. Uh, I could read a book. Or I could watch whatever was on three or four TV channels, and really all that was on was kind of the evening news and the morning news, and then a couple of shows at night. There really wasn't even anything during the day. So you compare that to today, where most children uh, have a tablet or a phone. Uh, TV's got hundreds of channels. The internet is is endless as far as options of what you can look and find. You know, there's so many more things to distract people today, and that's why like you said, uh, not only time, but our attention in the present moment is the most valuable thing that we have and the most valuable thing we can give someone. And that's become increasingly more valuable because it's harder to get. It's harder to get someone's focused attention. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're respectful and appreciative of my time, but I'm very respectful and appreciative of yours and your listeners' time, which is why you have my full undivided attention right now. I mean, mm. you can clearly see me on video. I'm, I'm not checking email. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not folding laundry. I'm not doing anything but giving you my full undivided attention uh, because I believe you and your listeners deserve that. And, uh, but that's not the way the world's working. Many people are trying to do two or three or four things at once. You know, I see it all the time even driving. People are dri- I've seen people, of course, we've all seen people on their phones when they're driving. I've seen people reading the paper when they're driving. Mm. I've seen somebody shaving when they're driving. Uh, not a, a straight razor, but an electrical. Yeah. I've seen women put on lipstick when they're driving. It's like, my goodness, uh, just focus on one thing at a time. And that's, for me, one of my major focal points is I'm continuing to try to get better at giving everything I'm doing the exact same focus and attention that I'm giving you and your listeners right now. Uh, but I readily admit, as basic as that premise is, it is really hard to do. It is not easy to be fully invested in the present moment. Uh, so I, I have empathy for younger people because they're growing up in a generation that doesn't know any different. Hmm. I, I look at the cons- what concerns me is productivity and the ability to be productive. And I think from a business standpoint, it, it could affect the productivity of what we're doing down the track. Because if people cannot do this concept of deep work and long periods of time without distraction, then then the quality of the work and the quantity 
will will actually be affected in in my opinion absolutely i think the next generation we, we may not see that for another five to ten years but i do think it's going to play a role in the performance of companies if if they that situation of distraction isn't addressed and you hear it all the time of people going into boardrooms where they've got their phone on a desk or and, and they're you know waiting for a meeting to start and they've got their mobile phone in front of them and everyone's just looking at their phone and the human interaction you talk about culture and you know human interaction is so important but people want to and are choosing to interact with devices other than each other when they're in a room so you know policies of you know phones go in a box or something don't bring them into Absolutely. a meeting and things like that can can help build rapport within an organization because it forces people to actually talk about their lives to each other ahead of yeah. a meeting or ahead of a team meeting or well and this is i actually think this is uh all right maybe it's not a good thing for mankind and for society but if i was uh if i was the ceo of an organization i would actually be glad that's the way the world's headed because i know that i could make that a competitive advantage for my company that we could be we could have such high standards for being in the present moment and creating relationships and face-to-face -face contact and blocking out distractions. That could actually be one of our competitive advantages. Mm. That I believe that if we focused on those things, we could be more productive than our competition because they're not going to be focused on those things, as you just mentioned. And it will be very interesting to see that battle between everything becoming automated and, and digitized versus are human beings becoming less productive. But I love the fact that the world moves towards automation because that means little customized touch points. Something as simple as a handwritten note is more valuable today than it's ever been mm. um, because no one's doing it anymore. So if I owned a company and I had 100 people that were on my team, I would be talking about this stuff relentlessly. Like I wouldn't even need to tell people, uh, turn off your phones when you get into the meeting or put them in this box. That would be so built into our fabric, they would just know that. They would just leave their phones at their desk when they came in for the meeting because they know that's something that is really important. And if it's important, I'm going to emphasize it daily and we're going to hold each other accountable for that. So if you happen to be the one guy that brings your phone to the meeting, everyone's mm. going to be looking at you with a crooked eye as opposed to the opposite, which is everyone has their phone. And now the one guy that doesn't, people are like, what's wrong with him? So I, I think productivity, human productivity could be a major separator if folks really start to embrace these concepts and focus on them now. And no matter what happens, I know that we will move towards a, a, a more technologically savvy environment, that we will move towards more automation, digitization. But bottom line is your coworkers and colleagues will always be human beings and your clients and customers will always be human beings. So as long as that's true, then relationships and the way we interact and the way we pay attention to human beings is always going to be uh, or should be a part of a company's secret sauce. Hmm. You talk in keynotes and things about this concept of a performance gap. So I'd like to bring that up uh, so that the audience come to understand what that is. So do you want to give a bit of uh, background and, and just a conversation around this performance gap that you speak of in your speech, in your uh, trainings and keynotes? Be happy to. Yeah, a performance gap is simply the gap between what we know and what we do. It's the gap between what all of us know intellectually, intuitively, and know what we should be doing, and then how do we actually behave and what are we doing. So we used that example earlier. A team with a, a very poor culture has a 
a huge gap between what they say they believe and how they behave. And we all have performance gaps. Even the highest performers in the world aren't immune to them. Uh, but the highest performers in the world have found ways to mitigate them or eliminate them, at least in the most pressing areas. Uh, perfect example. You know, I, I have the full humility to acknowledge that most of what I share is incredibly basic. Now, none of this stuff is easy. And that's one thing that's really important for people to know. Basic and easy are not synonyms. Mm -hmm. They do not mean the same thing. People often treat them as if they're interchangeable, but they're not. Um, I have 10-year-old twin sons and an 8-year-old daughter. They would have understood, if they listen to this podcast, and I might make them do so, they'll understand every word of it. There's not anything on here that will confuse them, and they're only 8 and 10 years old. But nothing that I've said so far is easy to do. And, and I can even say the same thing for your audience. I don't think that I've shared anything so far that, that your listeners haven't already heard before or don't already know. But that's not the important question to ask. The most important question to ask is, am I doing this stuff? Okay, so I heard Craig say this. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I heard Alan say this. Yeah, I know that. Well, it's okay that you know it, but are you doing it? Because if you're not doing it, then it really doesn't matter. You know, it, 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 just knowing without doing is completely useless. It's no different than that book on your shelf that you haven't read. That thing's doing nothing to help you out. And to take it even one step further, and this is what a lot of people actually make the mistake of, they do read the book, but then they don't put any of the stuff into action. And mm. once again, it's almost as if you, you could have just not read the book if you're not going to act on any of it. You know, I tell people all of the time, and I, I know that it's, there's a dramatic feel to it, and I do that intentionally. I say, look, if you read my, my book, Raise Your Game, if you read it, It'll do absolutely nothing for you, nothing. Mm -hmm. If you read my book and put it into action, it may change your life. It may change a couple of your, your key habits. It might be just what you need to create a breakthrough. So just reading the book by itself will do nothing. Reading the book and actually implementing stuff could change everything for you. And that is the difference of what creates a, a performance gap, knowing and doing. Hmm. That's, that's very insightful. I, I like that concept of the performance gap because we do it, as you say, everyone does it to varying degrees within their lives is we know what we should be doing. And diet was one of the conversations I've seen you had in the past where we all know we should be eating healthy, but we tend to choose not to, and it is a choice. So that's the other thing about the performance gap is we make the choices of what we want to take on board in action and what we just want to know. And that, that's, yeah. that's something that's... Well, and, and, and if we even take it a step further, I mean, because of the internet and, and the stuff that we've talked about, knowledge is at an all-time high. In fact, I don't know that there's anything from a knowledge standpoint that if you and I don't know it, that we can't find it in a matter of seconds by just typing it into Google. Hmm. So uh, not knowing is very rarely the, the, the reason people get straighted anymore. Uh, it's the not doing. You know, even not, not only does everyone know that they should eat healthy, if you ask people to write down a list of the healthiest foods they know of, they could list 30 foods immediately. You, and, and you'd see a lot of the same foods. People would start writing down, you know, blueberries and spinach and avocado. And, you know, uh, they would know what foods are healthy. But then if you ask them, well, what foods do you actually eat? If, if there's not a lot of crossover, then they have a performance gap. Same thing with sleep. You know, I don't know that there's an adult in the world that doesn't know that sleep is important, that you should be getting seven, eight, nine hours of quality sleep every night. So people know that that's important. But then if you ask, especially people in the business world, especially entrepreneurs in startup situations, well, how much sleep do you get? 
It's like, I don't know, two, three hours, sometimes four. It's like, okay, so you know how important sleep is to your critical thinking, to your energy level, to your decision-making, to your ability to run your company. You know how important that is, and you're not doing it. I mean, that's the definition of a performance gap. And it's it, the key to improving performance for anybody is starting to close that gap, is starting to do all of the things that you know you're supposed to do. And what I find really fascinating is we can have them in different areas of our life. So I've spent most of my life around health and fitness and wellness. So I had very narrow performance gaps. Like I work out regularly. I get plenty of quality sleep. I eat healthy foods. That just comes very naturally for me. But then I've looked at other areas of my life. And there have been times where, let's say financially, I've had pretty big performance gaps. You know, I knew I was supposed to be saving money. I knew I was supposed to be investing or doing this. And I wasn't doing those things before. And it wasn't because I didn't know. It was simply because I wasn't doing that. One thing that I want to touch on is a concept of infinite games and process and finite games, which Simon Sinek actually speaks to in his talks. Uh, do you see the translation between the people who are in sport that are most successful, that they seem to be constantly evolving and improving and they never reach or have a finishing point? So it's almost like they're playing an infinite game within this concept of a finite game, a game within rules. And do you see that translate to businesses that are successful as well, this concept that they're more focused on the process than their competitors and and continually improving and evolving to deliver outcomes for their their customers as opposed to like with sports, it's delivering that outcome for your team, which is winning. Absolutely. Yeah, without question. And that's that also parallels kind of Carol Dweck's growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And, you know, I personally believe uh, not only are we more successful when we're continually growing, but we're also happier and more fulfilled. I mean, I, I believe that continual growth and subjecting ourselves to new stuff and developing um, is part of the fuel that drives our passion for whatever that may be. And the best players I've ever been around, they do two things. One, they never leave the basics. So they always work on the fundamentals. That will always be a constant. But then they're always looking to evolve and add something new to their game. Hmm. You know, I know we spoke about, about Kobe earlier. I mean, every offseason, he would try to add a new component to his game. Uh, LeBron does the same thing. Michael Jordan used to do the same thing. You know, uh, Kobe hired Hakeem Olajuwon, one of the best uh, centers to ever play the game. One offseason, he hired Hakeem to help him with his post-up game. You know, here he is, a guard. Uh, but he wanted to be able to add this new dynamic to his game. So he was always adding that. And it's the same is true in business. And this is what's fascinating. If, if all of your competition keeps getting better and you stay the same, then by, if, by comparison, you're actually getting worse. Mm. You know, you're losing market share or you're losing profit because they're getting better and you're not. So uh, even staying the same, you're not really staying the same. You're actually lowering your value to the marketplace because everyone else is getting better. So uh, not only is it more fulfilling and you're, you're happier when you're growing, but it also your, your performance improves, your success and significance improves. So yeah, self-development, and it always starts with self. You know, I mean, I would tell anyone that's a part of any organization or team, the very first step to improving this team is improving yourself. If you want us to have a better you know, year this year as a company, then you need to be better this year. You know, if you want us to grow and improve, then you need to grow and improve. So you might only be one of 100 people in our organization, but if you're not developing and leveling yourself up, then 
then you're, you're sandbagging. You're basically an anchor. You're weighing the rest of us down. And if all 100 people commit to getting more mastery of their craft and developing new skill sets and getting better at what they're doing and constantly evolving, if everyone's doing that, then the company will get better by default. Nothing else mm. is even possible. Is that a cultural thing that maybe that's a corporate responsibility as well to provide those opportunities for growth? Does the concept of people growing threaten poor organizations where they're worried about people growing and leaving an organization and that's a bad culture to have if you're worried that good people will leave? It, it sort of says something about your organization if you're worried about that. So, so how do you say to a company, growth is important and you want your your people to be progressing and getting better and better. And yes, that may mean they'll leave, but it also may mean because you're looking after them, they'll stay. Absolute man, you, you just dug into some really great stuff there. Uh, kind of two angles that we can look at. Uh, one, yes, the best organizations that I've ever been a part of are constantly investing in their people. They realize that paying for professional development, whether it's bringing in a speaker or ordering a book or paying for a course or sending their team to a conference, they understand that that's a quality investment. I mean, the, and first of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, second of all, it will keep your people motivated, as we've already discussed, that if I'm constantly paying for new opportunities for you because you work at my company, that's going to keep your passion at an all-time high. And the higher your passion is, the better your productivity will be. So it's actually good for the company to keep the fires lit of the people that work there. Uh, but then if you want to talk about a return on your investment, you know, uh, Craig, you've been crushing it this past month. You've done an awesome job. Well, I could give you $500 in cash and you just go spend that however you want, or I can pay for a $500 online course for you to take. It's the same money coming off of my bottom line, but one of them, the company's going to reap a benefit because now you're going to be a more engaged coworker or colleague, and you're going to learn new skill sets from this online course that you can now apply to help the rest of us get better, or I can just give you $500 and let you spend it on whatever you want. So it's not even like I have to invest more money. I just have to make sure that I'm investing it in the right things. And the, the whole concept of, well, we don't want good people to leave. Uh, there's a couple things. One, and I cannot remember for the life of me who originally said this, but it definitely was not me, said something like, the only thing worse than paying you know, for development for your people to get really good and leave is not paying for it, and they suck, and they stay. Hmm. It's like, oh, gosh, well, that's not a good <laughs> thing either. Yeah. Um, and, and what I would constantly be reminding myself is I want to keep developing my people for the reasons I just stated, but I also want to show them so much appreciation and I want them to know how much I value them that they don't want to leave, that they love being here. And part of that is that I keep giving them, I mean, promotion doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a promotion, but I keep creating opportunities for them to be a part of this culture that they might not be able to get anywhere else. And if and when they grow to a point where they've outgrown their role and I don't have anything else for them, then I should want them to go somewhere else. Like the humanity mm. in me should want to wish them well and write a great endorsement for them to go somewhere else. You know, I, uh, the way that the world changes, if I owned a company, you know, I don't know that I want 100 people working uh, on my team that are all completely content with just being here. Like I want someone that says, Alan, you know what? I look forward to working for you and learning from you for the next five years. And then I'm going to go off and start my own business. Uh, right with that. Because mm. that means for 
for five years, I'm going to have somebody that is very passionate, very motivated, someone that's going to be committed to getting us to be really good so that he or she can then go off and do their own thing. Uh, I, I don't believe you should lead through fear. I don't think you should be leading through pressure and trying to keep people. Um, one of the most fulfilling things that I always saw in basketball was a head coach when one of the assistant coaches would leave and take a head coach job somewhere else and how proud the head coach was that one of their and I say underlings, not in a mm -hmm. bad way, but one of their underlings went on to take on a job on their own. Like that's a that's a feather in your cap. That's a great thing. So uh, to me, you should pour into your people. You should equip them with skills and opportunities that they feel great about where they are. Um, and you should appreciate them so much that they don't want to leave. But if and when it's actually on, you know, in their best interest to leave, they do so in the right way and you support them and encourage them. I just believe that's the uh, a code of conduct all of us should be living by. Mm. Steve Jobs had this concept of A, a plus and A employees, and he basically said a lot of organizations and a lot of, you know, people pick people who are B and C, what, like rating them. He used ratings and he said he wanted to pick A plus people. He wanted to pick people better than himself. And he, yeah. he, he basically said if your organization's picking people because you're feeling threatened that if you get someone too good that you might be out of a job then you you're in the wrong business because business is about Absolutely. being the best and sport would be the same I'm, i wouldn't think that there's not a team on the planet in sport where it doesn't want the best players and the best team players to win <laughs> well and what's interesting especially in sport is of course the coaches want to get the best players but when you've really created a special atmosphere is when the players also want you to get the best players. Mm. You know, if I'm the starting point guard and I know you're recruiting another really good point guard, it takes a lot of courage and, and humility and confidence on my end to encourage that. Uh, because two things, one, I can say, all right, well, if you do recruit this other point guard, uh, I'm going to have to raise my game in order to keep my starting position. So bringing in this other good player is actually going to make me better because now I have to compete. And that's the mindset of a champion. And then the other mindset is simply, well, the more great players I can surround myself with, the better we'll be. And in team sports, uh, winning should be the most important part. Once you get, I'm not talking about youth levels, but once you get to high school and college and pro, winning should be what's most important. So a, a mediocre player would say, you know, I want to be the top dog. I want to be the best player in the leading score. So I don't want our coach to recruit other good players. I want to be the man, even if we don't win very much. Whereas a champion says, I want you to get the best players possible. And even if that means I don't play as much as I'd like, or I don't get to shoot as much as I'd like, we're going to win a championship. And I'm going to be a part of something bigger than myself that's really special. And, and those, are, those are hard to find because I do believe – Things like jealousy and selfishness, they're, they're wired in our DNA. They're inherent. Mm. You know, it's normal for a player to want to be the best player and to feel threatened if another good player comes in. So it's really abnormal to be able to step outside of that. But that's why winning championships and being elite level players is not normal. Mm. Now, you also in this conversation have brought up on several occasions this word basic and keeping with the basics and I know that you have a really good story around Kobe Bryant so I know not everyone who listens to my podcast is into basketball but 
I think, um, and you also have a good story around Steph Curry and um, free throws. So I, I think it would be, you know, good if you can take an opportunity to to tell those stories. And the other thing that you identify as humans, we are storytellers, and yes. the importance of telling stories to deliver a message and to deliver learning to people. Yeah. Well, no, I, I love the way you teed that up, um, and I think this will be a, a great way to kind of put a bow tie on everything we've talked about uh, as a leader as a communicator, as a speaker, um, in order to change people's behavior or change, actually get them to, to put things into action, they have to remember what it is that we said or what it is that we taught. So we want things to be sticky. And, and I certainly found that story makes things incredibly sticky. Uh, so no matter what line of work you're in, even if you're a manager and you've got four people that report to you, anytime you can tell a story that has a lesson it's much more powerful and memorable than just telling them what to do. You know, hey, I want you to do this, this, and this is not near as powerful or as effective as if I tell you a story and the moral of that story is this, this, and this. So uh, I'll give you the abbreviated version of both because uh, certainly folks can, can find them on my website mm -hmm. if they want the full story. But uh, in 2007, I had a chance to watch Kobe go through one of his private workouts. And I just remember being blown away at how basic the drills he was doing. He was doing basic pivoting drills, basic ball handling and offensive move drills. And at the time, I mean, Kobe was the best player on the planet. And I just was shocked to see somebody at his level doing drills that I had done with middle school and high school age players. And when I asked him why he was doing such basic drills, he basically said, well, that's the reason I'm so good is I don't get bored with the basics. And mm. that was a really pivotal lesson for me and it's reminded me ever since that the key to being good at anything is never leaving the basics. It's committing to those basics relentlessly, especially during the unseen hours. And really, anyone in the business world, you need to start figuring out what are your basics. You know, um, let's just say someone listening to this is in sales. Uh, well, if you're in sales, I'm a huge believer that the ability to actively listen is one of the most important skill sets that in order for you to ask insightful questions and listen to what your prospect has to say, that's one of the most basic components of being good at sales. Well, how, how often are you practicing the skill of listening? You know, as a sales professional, are you always telling people that they should buy your stuff and beating them over the head with features and benefits? Or are you asking questions to see if their prospects a good fit and then listening to their answers? So um, one could make a very compelling argument that listening is one of the basics of being effective in business. And then if it's a basic, then you have to be practicing it regularly. Uh, very similar uh, at that Kobe Academy, I met Steph Curry. He was one of the college counselors there. And what was remarkable about him was he wouldn't leave the workout until he swished five free throws in a row. And anyone that's listening that's ever shot a basketball knows that's a really high standard. To swish five in a row is really, really challenging. And you know, it's my belief that, that high standards like that are the reason Steph will go down in history as the greatest shooter the game's ever seen. You know, and it's not by accident or luck, it's because he's willing to hold himself to a high standard. And it goes back to the basics. He wasn't doing anything miraculous. He was swishing five free throws. Free throws, one of the most basic shots in basketball outside of a layup or dunk. And he wanted to have mastery over that. So uh, those are two lessons that I think are really important for us to pull from. And I, I know that I use them in my my life daily. I'm constantly trying to figure out what are the basics that I need to continue to master and what are the standards of excellence that I need to live up to 
in order to become the man that I want to become and do my very best not to deviate from either. Yeah, they're great stories and also the the amount of words that come up in those stories do teach lessons that, the, you know, you're talking about standards throughout this interview and I think one of the things I've noticed with the organisations that I've been party to that I've since left that where I didn't feel that I was feeling their culture, if I could put it that way, it was, I felt because they didn't have standards and the accountability that was needed that I felt that, that would make it an organization of fairness. So I think standards yeah. breed a degree of fairness and, and the organization that I run, my sporting one, um, Oswush actually has a statement of standards stolen part in part from the United States football men's team from the coach yep. K implemented a couple of seasons ago, which actually came out of a heated conversation, I believe with LeBron who didn't look him in the eye. And, yep, uh, and absolutely. he, and he said, this is unacceptable. We're not going to have this culture. So he got the, the players together, gave them ownership of it and said, we are going to establish some standards here. And you've had, you've had an experience with coach K. So I might, finish on this and it comes back to where you're talking about the value of of a note or the value of a letter so i I, i'll finish on this i'll let you um give us a bit of an outro as well and thank you for your time but just give us a little bit of the backstory of coach k and your experience with him and i appreciate you giving like i said your time because it is our most valuable resource Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. You've navigated a really fun conversation, and I can tell you've practiced the basic of active listening because uh, you asked very insightful questions and you came very prepared. So this has been a, a delight for me. Um, uh, Coach K was was really somebody, especially early in my career, that I, I idolized. I mean, I can't think of a different word. I mean, it was someone I'd read all of his books and um, was just blown away by his perspective and the way that he approached building teams. And I had a chance to meet him when I was working at Montrose. And I, I had a 10-minute conversation with him. And it's funny because I don't really remember anything that we said. I wasn't near as present back then as I'd like to believe I am now. Um, but I'll never forget how he made me feel. You know, he had great body language and, and facial expressions and eye contact. And he kept asking me questions. He made me feel like I was the most important person in the gym, which I really appreciated. And my parents raised me that if somebody goes out of their way to do something nice for you, you handwrite them a thank you note. So I went home that night and I handwrote Coach K a thank you note that just said, hey, thank you so much for your time today. You have no idea how much it meant to me. I really appreciate you. I'll continue to root and support for you and Duke. And I sent it off in the mail. And uh, three weeks later, to my surprise, I actually got a letter back. Uh, it's actually, hang on, I even have it right here in my office because <laughs> it's, it's in my stuff that I travel with, but you know, I don't know how closely everyone can see, but I mean, this is one of my most important possessions. It's actually a letter back from coach K from my original note. Yeah. And he, he basically said the same thing and was thanking me for my time. And I just remember a couple things. One my guess is it took him maybe 60 seconds to write this note. That's it. Maybe 60 seconds. And, you know, uh, over the course of our life, 60 seconds is a, is a little thing. But this little thing really had a huge impact on me because this little thing is the reason that I'm relentless about returning people's emails and voicemails and phone calls. Uh, because I figure if the winningest coach in the history of college basketball can make the time to return my letter, 
then you better believe, Craig, I can call you back. You better believe I can I can email you back or return your text message. So this little thing made a huge difference. And I'm a, I'm a profound believer in the fact that little things that we do consistently over time can have a huge effect on everyone else. And, you know, once again, I use that story to teach a lesson uh, to one final thought that, you know, when I, I talk about the stickiness, uh, unfortunately, when Kobe passed away, I received hundreds of emails and text messages, many people that I had never met before that just said, hey, I remember you telling that Kobe story at our, you know, when you keynoted our conference six months ago. I didn't even know who Kobe was at the time, but I'll never forget that story. And to me, that's, first of all, that shows what a powerful legacy Kobe had, mm. but it really reaffirmed that telling story can be powerful that these people remembered something that I had to stay on stage because I told it through the lens of a story of Kobe Bryant. And they, you know, I get notes all the time that say, Hey man, uh, I loved about never get bored with the basics. I'm going to teach that to my kids or, you know, that's going to be something that's added to our wall in our locker room. So yeah, story is a great way to get those points across and using that story from coach K just remember that, that little things done consistently over time make a huge difference. Hmm. Thanks for your time, mate. I really do appreciate every moment that you've given us today. And I will make sure that all the, the, the links to where people can get hold of you and your book go in the description. So I wish you all well with your keynotes. I think you recently on one of the major speaking websites were seen as one of the top five or six sought after keynote speakers on the on the US circuit at the moment and hopefully we'll see you out here in Australia sometime. Oh my goodness, I would love that. Coming to Australia has been on my bucket list for a long time, so I would love to make that happen and, and I appreciate you so much. No worries. Awesome. Thanks, mate. You got it, brother. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment. If you haven't yet subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded. I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.